Well, good morning. If I don't know you, I'm Bill, one of the pastors here, and it's exciting to be together as we start Advent. We launch this morning into our Advent series, which we're calling Songs of Hope. We're looking through the Bible and looking at some of the songs that it's preserved for us that would give us hope during this time. You might say that what we're doing is we're creating a Bible playlist about hope. Songs our Bible gives us about hope. And when I was thinking about that, I thought, man, many of y'all don't know how easy you've got it. You get on Spotify, you have pretty much every song that has ever been recorded in the world available to you. You click a bunch of things and you send it to your friends and you've sent them a playlist. Um, you don't remember wiring together two boom boxes and trying to figure out how to use the pause button so you could make a mixtape that would actually go. And if you're laughing, I was feeling old until I remembered some people in this room remember when Rewind came in, and that was so helpful, or when they got rid of their eight tracks. So then I didn't feel so bad. Um, but we're not talking about recording technology this morning, though it actually does start to point to what we are talking about and it's, it's this, there's something about us humans that makes us feel like our music has to follow us wherever we go. The ubiquity of song, the omnipresence of song, the fact that we need our music with us tells us something about the power of songs to move not just our minds, but our hearts and our souls. And when we see that, it starts to get to why this might help us in Advent. Advent has, since the fourth century, been something the church has seemed to observe as a period of waiting. And what we mean by that is that as we wait for Christmas, you know, kids, as you wait for Christmas to come and wish it would come and it seems like it's forever and it's not getting any closer, it's actually a tiny picture of what we are doing as Christians. We're not just waiting to celebrate Jesus' first coming. As Christians, we are waiting for his second coming when he will come back and make all things new. And so the church has long observed Advent waiting for Christmas, not simply waiting for the party to come on December 25th, but reminding us that we wait for a much greater party to come when Jesus comes back. And so how would we wait well? Well, you know, waiting well is not typically something that happens that easily for people. It sure doesn't happen for this one. You know, if you were to take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle, and on one side on the left, put all the times I've really had to wait for something. On the right, put all the times I've been grumpy and ornery and anxious and snippy and short. You'd probably see a remarkable correlation between the two sides of the ledger. We don't tend to wait terribly well. What would it mean as we look at this Advent season of waiting for the Bible to help us wait better? Well, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 147, first 11 verses, working first out of the Psalter, what you might call the hymn book of the Bible. After that, tonight in our Advent online service, JT's going to take us all the way back to Exodus 15, and then over the next weeks, we'll work our way back forward through the Bible, looking at some songs that really help us think about how could we wait well during this period of Advent. So let's start here, Psalm 147. First 11 verses. I'd encourage you to read the whole Psalm later today. Meditate on it, think on it. But for this morning, we're going to concentrate on these first 11 verses. Here we go. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. 
The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these words, we pray that you would, because they are your words, given through the psalmist so long ago, make them powerful, not even just in our minds, but in our hearts. We pray that you would get past our intellectualism, that you get past the defenses of our brains and sink into our hearts and souls with a different kind of waiting and a different kind of trusting in you. Take these words and make them the bread of life to us, we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at verse one, verse one is actually remarkable in this. It's actually a command. It's actually an order. If you look at verse one, it's really crystal clear. Praise the Lord, not as an invitation, not as an offer, not as a suggestion. It's actually the Bible, the psalmist giving us an order. Hey, you, praise the Lord. And, and the Bible's actually full of things like this. This one, in fact, is just the Hebrew word hallelujah. Every time you and I say hallelujah, what we're actually saying is we're looking at everybody around us and saying, hey, you, praise the Lord. It's given people an order. If you think about it, the Bible is full of these. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, glorify the Lord, pray to the Lord. It has all these things that are actually commands to us. And I don't know about you, but the moment you tell me I have to do it, something in me starts to push back a little bit, starts to react against it a little bit to reject the command. I kind of don't like people telling me what to do that much. And I doubt I'm alone in that. And so you take even something I want to do and you tell me I have to do it and suddenly I go, nah, I don't know. Um, One of many examples I could use, your pastors, like your pastoral interns, um, have all gone to seminary. And you go to seminary because you want to understand this book better. You want to understand the Bible really well. You've read it all your life. You want to study it. You love your Bible. You go to seminary and of course then every syllabus you get for three, four, five, six, in my case, seven years it took me to get through seminary, has Bible reading on it. Now you have to read the Bible, and suddenly when you have to read the Bible, you go, nah, I don't want to do my homework today. I mean, the thing that you loved, the whole reason you went there, suddenly now that it's required, now that it's in order, you're like, "Mm, no thanks. I mean, it's the devil's best work against seminary students to take this wonderful book and make it dry and boring and businesslike and required. When it becomes an order, we sort of push back, and it's the same way kind of with praising the Lord. The moment you tell me, hey, you, you need to praise the Lord, I go, ah, you know what, 2020's been kind of a calm year. I'm not so sure. I mean, let's see, one of my best three friends in the world moved to Knoxville, and the way pastoral life works, I don't get to talk to him much anymore. We're making all these decisions without the right information, never knowing if we're putting our family in risk, if we're being too careful, or somewhere between the two, or both at the same time. We're trying to figure out how to live life on Zoom and school on Zoom and all these other things. And you go, you know what, 2020, I think I'd rather whine than praise the Lord. 2020 kind of stinks. 
what does the psalm say to us in that? Well, the psalm, Psalm 147, the psalmist says to us this, if we get a real sense of who God is, suddenly praising the Lord won't be as hard. If we get a real sense of who God is, suddenly praising the Lord won't be as hard. And let's look at it under three headings. First, what does the psalm ask of us? Second, why does it ask it? And then third, how would we do it? So what, why, and how? What does the psalm ask? Let's delve deeper into this imperative. First one, praise the Lord. Have you ever heard the backstory to a song and had it suddenly like make more sense, resonate with you more? Um, our resident Carolina boy, Rob Yancey, introduced me to an um, audiobook called Breakshot. It's James Taylor's memoirs of his early life and then his early recording career. If you don't know this, um, when I was in high school, we wore this guy's album out, his greatest hits album with kind of plain cover and just the list of the songs. I broke the cassette tape three times until CDs came out and I could buy one. And we just loved this guy's music. Well, in this book, audio book that the version Rob and I listened to, he goes into a chapter where he talks about the song Carolina on my mind. And he describes how he was actually a brand new recording artist. He was the first artist signed by the Beatles' Apple record label. So he'd gone over to London. He's recording. And on a break in recording, he went and traveled a little bit. He went to some islands off the coast of Spain. And he had no money at this point. He hadn't made it yet. And so he had to, along with one of his traveling companions, sit up all night outside of a closed cafe waiting for the ferry to arrive the next morning. And while he sat there, he just started getting homesick. Started thinking about his home and his family and his life and his friends. And as he sat there overnight in the dark outside a locked cafe waiting for a ferry, he sat down and he pinned, in my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. And it's a beautiful song, but when you hear that, and if you've ever felt homesickness, suddenly it just expands and resonates for you. You go, oh, I get it. I see what that song means. Well, this psalm is kind of similar to that. If we know the backstory, it's going to make a whole lot more to us. And in fact, with this psalm, you can't always do it with a psalm. In this one, we do know the backstory. And the hint is in verses 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. The psalmist writes this, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now, how does that tell us the backstory? Well, Israel's history in 30 seconds to a minute. Ready? You got kings, David and Solomon. You might have heard of them. They make this big, united country out of the tribes. That lasts only until the end of Solomon's reign. It's only 70 years that all 12 tribes of Israel are in a single kingdom. After Solomon dies... The Yankees revolt against the Southerners. And so you've got the Israelite kingdom up north, the Yankees. You've got the Southerners, the Judahite kingdom down south. And they treat each other about that well. They invade each other. They go to war, things like that. Lasts for 200 years. In 200 years, the marauding Assyrian Empire comes storming in and wipes the northern kingdom of Israel off the map. Never to be heard of again. 130, 140 years after that, now a new empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, comes storming in. They do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They raise it down to nothing, just stones on the ground. They take most of the leaders of society and deport them back to Babylon, where they live as glorified slaves called civil servants working for King Nebuchadnezzar. That's called the exile of Israel, the exile of Judah. They don't even have a homeland. They don't even have a nation. They don't even have a king. And the prophets had told them this, that's going to happen. 
But after it happens, God will bring you back to Jerusalem. And when he brings you back, the prophet said, it is going to be so remarkable. God will actually give you flourishing. He will give you security. He will give you peace. He will give you comfort. He will give you all you need. You will live in safety. You'll be your own people again. In fact, the prophets go so far as to say he is going to make it a world where there are no tears, no struggling, no trouble. There'll be a new heavens and new earth because he, after you come back from exile, is gonna bring Messiah. Well, this Psalm says they're back from exile. You look at verse two and three, God is rebuilding Jerusalem. The exiles are back. And so you think, well, that's great. This is like go time. And in fact, if you read the rest of the Bible, it's not like that at all. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and then the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you actually find out that far from being that glorious, wonderful vision, they're back in the land, but they're surrounded by people who hate them. And those people are a lot stronger than they are militarily. They are on the edge of getting crushed at any given moment. They managed to rebuild their temple, though a lot smaller than the one they'd had. But then all the peoples around them forced them to stop work on Jerusalem. They have an indefensible city, possibly invaded at any moment. Now, past that, there are famines and there are droughts. And there's what the Bible calls pestilence. You would call it a pandemic. They're living in struggle. They're living in difficulty. It looks nothing like the vision that the prophets had given of when you come back, God will bring Messiah and then everything will be great because they're still waiting for that Messiah to come. And in waiting for that Messiah to come, their life really is tough. So you write, praise the Lord. They say, well, I guess I am here in his temple, but I, you know what? Life's hard enough. I'm just not really sure I want to. This psalm is not happy, shiny people writing a song of praise to other happy, shiny people saying, shine on. This psalm is struggling people in difficulty and trouble, writing to struggling people in difficulty and trouble saying, yeah, life here is really hard. And you know what? Praise the Lord. Anyway. When we put it that way, suddenly we can actually resonate with this a little bit, right? Because 2020 hasn't taken anybody's happy meter off the chart as far as I can tell. You know, living in distancing with masks in the middle of a pandemic where a hug for anybody who's not in your immediate family isn't allowed, that's not the way we want to live. You know, Zoom school, Zoom work, Zoom purgatory, none of this is the way we want life to be. And some of you, it's like, look, I wish COVID were the worst of my problems. It's metastasized bone cancer or my job is gone or my marriage is shattered. You know, there's so many things that we think, yeah, you know what, life is hard. I get why these people don't wanna praise the Lord because I don't really feel like praising God much right now in 2020 either. This is a Psalm written from people struggling to people struggling, in a sense, arguing with themselves about saying, why should we still praise God even right now? And so that brings us to the second question. If what we're supposed to do is praise God, why? And here the psalmist actually is like a good writer. You know, kids, when you write an essay at school, you're supposed to give your introduction, give your thesis, and then say, what's your outline? Well, they give a little outline in verse one, two things, because one, it's pleasant, and two, it's fitting. Psalmist says, this is my argument. Why should we praise God? One, because it's fun. Two, because it's right. Now, I don't know about you, but if you gave me an order, I wouldn't have started with, because it's fun. 
you know, if you if I gave you only one reason that you could make an argument, why should we praise God? Well, I'd probably be thinking, well, because he's God, because I guess he deserves it. And the psalmist is going to get there, but that's not where he starts. He starts with why should we praise God? Because it's delightful, because it's fun. In other words, the psalm says in verse one, because worship ought to be a party. Worship ought to be fun. Worship ought to be delightful. Now, do keep in mind, you can have loud parties and you can have quiet parties. We're not talking about volume. We're not talking about style, but we are talking about the joy and the fun, the excitement of it. It ought to be fun to come to church. Hey, kids, it ought to be fun. We want this church to be fun for you. And you know, normally, in a normal time, we are so packed in here, there's not a lot of room. Right now, you got five feet in front of your chairs. If you want to dance during the next song, get up and dance during the next song. You know, parents, we've got a wiggle room across the hall, but we don't, we don't want you to feel like you need to use it. It's the greatest thing in the world for a kid to come here and just love being at church. Now, students, adults, many of us spent so long being told, sit down, be quiet, sit down, be quiet, sit down, be quiet, as we grew up, that church became dreary. That the feeling we have is not like, yeah, I get to be in church. Well, it's another sermon for another time, but if we don't find ourselves looking forward to going to worship, that's sort of an indicator that something's messed up. It's like we need to go to the spiritual chiropractor because something's not quite in whack. Worship ought to be fun. Why should we, why should we praise God? Well, first off, because we love it. Because we delight to. And then second... The psalmist says, because it's right, because it's good, because it's fitting. And that second one, if you're here this morning, maybe you're here as a non-Christian, maybe, you know, family was coming and you said, really, we're going to church even now? And they said, yeah, and you're sitting here going, I thought the pandemic was gonna get me out of this, but here I am. Well, it may strike you as a really odd thing to say, it's right, it's good, you should praise God. Doesn't that make God sound sort of like a narcissist? that God's up there in heaven saying, come on, praise me, let me hear it. Well, if, if you feel that way, it may give you great comfort to know that C.S. Lewis, a relatively famous Christian author, felt that way himself before and even after he became a Christian. So he's got a nice little book called Reflections on the Psalms. Let me read you a, about a paragraph of what he wrote. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture, at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. And why incidentally did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise him? It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I'm good and great. Do you get Lewis's objection here? He said, this just feels wrong. If a human being acted this way and said, I'm here, come on, praise me, we'd go, that's despicable. That's not what we want. That's not admirable. That's not good. Well, if we can't stand it in a person, why in the world would we say it's great when God demands this in the Psalms? Lewis said, that was a real sticking point to me. 
And without going through all the detail, it's only about a 15-minute read, that chapter. So if you can pick up the book used or something, it's well worth it. But here's where Lewis lands the plane. He says, you know, when it really comes down to it, we're fundamentally people who are made to praise things. So when it really comes down to it, whenever we see something amazing, our reaction is to praise. You see a beautiful double rainbow, what's the first thing you do? You say, hey, look at that. You see a sheer mountain cliff, you say, that's gorgeous, that's amazing. You see a work of art, you see a beautiful ocean, anything, if there's somebody else around us, the first thing we do is we try to call their attention and praise the wonderful thing we just saw. I took my daughter, my older daughter, hiking in the Shenandoahs a week ago. And we went and did Big Devil Stairs, which is a less commonly done hike in the park. And I knew it was supposed to be a really nice gorge, especially for the Shenandoahs. I'd never been there. We hiked down. You can start to feel the gorges over there, but you can't get to it from the trail. And then finally, we come out on this outcropping And I mean, it's the Shenandoahs, but for the Shenandoahs, it's a beautiful gorge with this sort of three-level tier of a straight rock face. And I just came out and I looked at Callie and I said, now that's what I'm talking about. Because you see something beautiful and our just gut reaction is to praise it and share it. It's true of nature. It's true of art. I mean, it's even true of a joke, right? You hear a really funny joke and what do you immediately want to do? You want to tell it to somebody else. It's no fun if you don't share it. You want to take other people and spread it. Well, Lewis says, that's really exactly what's going on with us more generally. We are people who are made to praise things, and so we naturally do it. If you go a little further in the chapter, here's what he says. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. You get what he's saying, right? We are people that just naturally praise. We're actually made for it. And when you're doing the thing you're made to do, it's just right. It just feels the way it should. St. Augustine, African bishop in the early centuries of the church said, our souls were made for you, God. And we find rest only when we come and do that. So Lewis's basic argument is, hey, we praise God and it's right because it's what is right because we're made for it. And because it's entirely natural. If we praise a funny joke, how much more do we praise a really funny joke? Well, if we praise a beautiful thing, how much more would we praise God who is more beautiful than anything? If we praise the power of a thundering waterfall, how much more would we praise God who is more powerful than anything? It's not that God is some narcissist up there who needs our praise to make himself feel good. God is complete in himself. He is entirely as Trinity, relationally and otherwise, perfect. It's not that we praise him because it fills up some gap in God. It's we praise him because it's right. If anything, it fills up a gap in us because it's what we're made to do. So the psalm says, praise God, and it makes two very particular reasons why. Number one, praise God because of his unbelievable, immense power. Look at verse four. Praise God because he's the one who took all the stars and flung them into space. 
billions of light years away. He's the one who names every star. He's the one who, in fact, knows what's going on with the massive thermonuclear reaction inside of everyone. Praise God, because this entire universe, bigger than we can even see with the best telescopes, is what he did, and he knows every bit of it. And to narrow it down, you go to verse 8. It focuses in on our very planet and says, He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills, provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. This God who made every star in the furthest reaches of the universe is the one who controls the weather on our planet, the one who pings hurricanes around where he wants them to go, the one who makes sure it rains when it's needed, the one who provides food for every wild animal wherever they are on the planet. And that may be amazing, but for some of us, that actually almost compounds the problem because we say, well, that's great. I have no trouble believing God's amazing. You know what I have trouble believing? That he cares about me. If that's who God is, well, I'm just worth very little, so why would he pay any attention to me? Notice the psalmist goes the exact opposite way. That amazing God who did it all, verse six, is the one who sustains the humble. He's the one who casts the wicked to the ground. That very huge God, second reason we praise him is because he's so intimately personal that he hears every baby's cry that he hears every groan of our heart, that the one who thinks he or she is nothing is lifted up because he hears you and he sees you. The psalmist says, praise God for his immense power and glory and praise him for his deep personal love for his people. Why do we praise God? Because it's fun and because it's right. Well, then number three, if you buy that, how do I do it? Let's try to get a lot more practical here. How would I actually do it? Um, Because... It sounds so self-evident. Well, you just start praising him. Okay, and don't worry, I would never do this to you, but what if I made you stand up right now and pray a prayer of praise to God out loud? Um, You know, what would you say? God, you're great. Uh, God, you're really, really, really great. And God, you're you're amazingly great. Um, You're you're. You're awesomely great, great, great. Uh, Can you imagine all the eyes looking at you as your mind goes blank? I can because it's my job. It's a distinct possibility that could happen someday. You know, well, what does it mean? Let's get ourselves a little further. What would I actually do if I took verse one to heart and started praising God? Well, the psalmist has a couple very important things to tell us. First, he tells us, here are a couple things it's not. It's not what you do for God, and it's not even what you say to God. Look at verses 10 and 11. And this is what he writes in verse 10 and 11. He says, His pleasure is not in the strength of his horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. In other words, explicitly, verse 10 says, it's not about the what you did for God. That's a big deal here. He doesn't take great joy because you say, oh, I did so much awesome stuff for you at church, God. I served you so well. That's not where God takes his pleasure. You know, we are so tempted to think so much of ourselves and say, well, you know, what praised God is how I served him. And God says, that ain't it. That's not what really gets me there. Um, You know, if you look upwards, verses seven to nine, in fact, if anything, what this psalm does is it sort of levels us with the animals in this way. The animals just live their lives. God gives them rain, which gives them food. They get up the next day. They find a little more food from God, and they just live their lives. Well, the psalmist, in a sense, says that's kind of like us. We actually get up. We live the next day, and then we live the next day. 
and we live the next day. We just live our lives before God. It's not that we get to walk in and say, God, you are so praised because I did such a killer job for you. I almost said the wrong word starting with K there. Um, So it's not what we do for him. And in fact, implicitly, you notice it's not even what we say to him. There's nothing in here about incredibly eloquent language. There's nothing in here about being so great with words. There's nothing in here about having the right phrase. In fact, if you go read in the New Testament, the people who are so proud of how well they speak about God when they pray, they don't come off real well. It's not about what we do for him. It's not about the eloquence with which we do it. It's something very different. What does it say in the next verse? It says it's about the people who fear God and who hope in him. Now, fear God seems like a weird thing to say here. Why is that? Is that not, again, our narcissistic God? You know, oh, goodness, well, they're scared of me. That's good. Well, no, that's not. That's not what the phrase fear of God means when the Bible uses it. It's very easy to make a mistake. You hear the words fear and God together, and you sort of think about the two words separately. Um, One of my mentors, Bruce Walkie, said, that's kind of like thinking about butter and fly together and thinking you understand a butterfly. You actually have to understand the whole phrase together. And if you look through the Bible and figure out what the phrase fear of God means in the Bible, it's not some strange terror. It's actually an incredibly comforting thing, although it's awesome. And, you know, maybe the analogy is this. I fear lightning if I'm hiking above tree line because I know what that can do to you if it hits you. Or, you know, I fear a 4,000-foot drop off Half Dome. If I were at the top of Half Dome in Yosemite, I'm not going to stand there like this because I know what gravity does when it takes over and I know how hard the rock is at the bottom. That's an appropriate fear. It's really the phrase fear of the Lord in the Bible is the awe of God. That's almost a better way to put it. It's amazing what we're dealing with, but that doesn't create a terror in us. Look at the rest of verse 11. It actually creates a hope in us. Why is that? Because when we realize how amazing our Lord is, and then we realize that God whose hands flung stars into space through the furthest reaches of the universe is the one who's telling me, I got you. I hold the stars in my hand, and I hold you in my hand. That amazing God of all that great power is someone, and he's not just someone, he's someone we know. He's our God and Savior. And so the psalm says, how do you praise God? Well, the first way you do it, it's not what you do, it's not even what you say. It's just a life that we live before him. It's coming to God and saying, you are great, and you're my God. And I live my life in humble trust and dependence on you, no different than a cow or a sparrow or a raven or anything else. And then second, you say, but you know, we do sometimes say things. Sure, we'll recognize the psalm gives us both a command and a model. What does the psalm do? The psalm looks at this amazing world that God's made and it attributes it to him. It starts by saying, when I see the world, when I see the weather, when I see the mountains, when I see the ocean, when I breathe the air, I realize, God, this is yours. You're the reason this is happening. You're the reason who made it all. I give you the glory for having made it. But then, second, the psalmist says, if that's who you are, here's my need. Because remember, this isn't a psalm from a bunch of people who are just rocking along and life is going great. This is a psalm for a bunch of people who are struggling and worried and anxious and maybe even angry who don't feel like praising him And that gets to the heart of why this is traditionally an Advent psalm in the church. Because these folks were waiting for Messiah to come. 
And as they waited for Messiah to come, their life wasn't the way they thought it ought to be. But the psalmist says, look at who our God is. We can trust that he's going to bring us goodness. We can turn our need, we can turn our weight, we can turn our fear and everything else over to him. And then you realize we live in the same place they do. You know, not geographically, of course, not in Jerusalem, but we live in the same place they do, waiting for Jesus to come back, waiting for Messiah to return, waiting for him to bring a new heavens and new earth where he will wipe away every tear, waiting for him to make the world the way it ought to be. And we need to wait the same way they need to wait. It was hard to wait. Life wasn't the way they wanted it to be, but it was right to praise God as they waited. And suddenly, Psalm 147 says, well, then just don't make it too hard. Take a good look at who God is. And when we really see who he is, suddenly the words will start to come. So let's pray. God, we pray, we ask that through these next four weeks of Advent, you would teach us how to wait well. That you would work the words, not just of this song, but of all the songs we're going to look at in the next month into our hearts and souls, such that we would wait as different people, that we would wait as people who are ready to trust you, to live in you. And so we bring you our needs. Lord, we, we quite rightly say this is not the year we wanted to have, but we know you're still good and we know you're in control of it. And as we wait for you to end a pandemic and as another holiday goes by that's not the way we wanted to celebrate it, we know that you hold every star in your hand and that you've flung them into space and you know their names and yet you've decided to know each of our names too. So work these songs into our heart that we would learn to wait well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.